Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it does in our hearts and lives. And I think one of the more or most discouraging things, that's probably not an understatement to say most discouraging things that can happen in the Christian life is when we pray and we hear no, that prayers are not answered the way that we desire. And we see instances in scripture that help uh, inform our responses, give us the wisdom we need to respond well and to understand what it means when you say no to those prayer requests. And I pray you'd use me as your vessel this morning and then next Sunday to encourage your people and equip them with the wisdom they need to handle those, those situations well and to not be discouraged. Give us the encouragement we need and help us to understand how to pray and what to pray and what our responses should be when you respond the way we desire and as much when you respond differently than we desire. And I thank you for this time, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to your word and the things that you want to say to us through it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. The title this morning's sermon is when, when God Says No, Part 1. Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We were in a series called Pursuing Wisdom, and it's actually been about two months since I preached a sermon from that series because of the weeks that I was in bed and then when I returned and preached those other sermons about our bodies breaking down. And the pause came at a good time because it allows us to introduce, or allows me to introduce, somewhat of a new topic, which is receiving wisdom to respond well when our prayers are not answered the way that we desire. It has been a few months. Let me briefly remind you that when we started this series, I wanted to talk about what wisdom is not, because I do think that there is so much confusion about what it means to be wise or to have wisdom. One of the most common myths that should be dispelled is that to be wise is to know the future, or to be someone thinks they're wise when they stand up and tell people what, what's going to happen or what God is going to do, or sometimes people think wisdom means knowing or understanding why God is doing what he's doing, or why he's not doing what uh, people think he should be doing, and that's not wise. I would actually say that's foolish. Because the Bible tells us that God's ways and thoughts are above ours and that we don't understand. And there are plenty of things that God does that don't make sense to us. That's what it means to walk by faith or to trust the Lord when we see things happening that we don't understand. And so it's not wise to know the future. It's not wise to be a false prophet and say that God is doing this or God is doing that. And so if that's not what wisdom is, then what is it? Well, there's a good example that J.I. Packer gave in his book, Knowing God, that I shared with you that wisdom is, ba- like, when compared with driving, it's basically being able to handle the twists and turns well. It's not necessarily knowing why the road curves the way that it does or why this person speeds up or this vehicle is parked on the side of the road. You don't sit there and wonder about those things. You just try to respond well when you encounter those situations while driving. Well, when we're, uh, you know, driving in the game of life, uh, wisdom allows us to handle those twists and those turns and respond well to trials. So I don't think that it's at all coincidental. I try to make this point. I think it's worth reminding you of that James 1 verses 2 through 5 is written the way that it is. So we're very familiar with verses 2 through 4. They're some of the most familiar, not just about trials, but perhaps in all of Scripture. Uh, I would think especially for some of the people in this church because multiple people have preached on these verses, verses 2 through 4, myself included. So there's these very familiar verses on trials, and then right after that we see verse 5. So look with me at James 1, 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, unfortunately, and I I think that this is... uh, I'll just say it. I think it's the wrong way to handle these verses. When pastors provide or, or communicate a very clean break between verses 2 through 4 and then verse 5 as though they have nothing to do with each other. And so someone might preach on trials and use verses 2 through 4 and then preach on wisdom and use verses 5 through 8, ignore the context and act as though James said what he said in verses 2 through 4, but it has nothing to do with what he says in verses 5 through 8. The reality of it, which you'll be shortchanged to not uh, recognize this, is that James begins to preach on or share about wisdom in verse 5 following his discussion on trials for a reason, an important reason. We need wisdom during trials. Wisdom allows us to handle the twists and turns of life, or another way to say it is wisdom allows us to navigate through the trials and tribulation of life well. There are a few things that we need more than wisdom. 
when we experience trials. And so after talking about wisdom, James says that ask, and God will give it to you, and he will give it to you liberally or generously. We don't always know what God is going to give us, but one thing you can be certain of is that God wants to give you wisdom when you're going through a trial so that you can handle that trial well. And you're even told to pray that. Don't doubt. Don't be double-minded about it. Expect that when you're going through a trial, God wants you to handle it well, and he'll give you the wisdom to do so. Now, one of the unique trials that we experience, and it's the one that we're going to be talking about the rest of this sermon and much of that sermon is hearing no from God when we pray. I think there are few things as discouraging as regularly lifting a prayer request up to the Lord, and it can be an unselfish one. It can seem moral, or it can seem righteous or good to us. We have every um, inclination that God would want to answer this prayer, and he doesn't. He doesn't answer it the way we would expect. He, perhaps he seems silent. He seems like you almost wonder if he's not listening for some reason. And so few things can be as discouraging as not having our prayers answered the way that we want. And so we're going to, I'm going to try through the pages of Scripture to equip you to have the wisdom you need to handle that trial or that difficulty well. Keep James 1, 5 in mind and turn to James 4. And we'll start with lesson one. God might say no because lesson one, we're being selfish. God might say no because lesson one, we're being selfish. The book of James contains one of the most obvious reasons that we would hear no or that our prayers would not be answered the way that we desire. Look with me in James 4 verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? If you just think about this for a moment, what commonly causes conflict for us, between us, among us? It's selfishness. It's us not getting the things that we want. We want something, we don't get it, and then we respond sinfully. We get angry or upset, we quarrel, we fight with people. Most of the quarrels or fights are the result of our selfishness or us not getting what we want. Look at verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have. So you murder. He's talking about extremes here, but I suspect that most murders, if not all of them, do result from someone trying to get something or not getting what they want. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And notice the words, the synonyms. Desire have, covet, obtain. This is a verse entirely about our selfishness and us getting what we want. And then in verse 3, the verse we've been building up for, he says, you ask and you do not receive or you don't get what you want because you ask wrongly to be able to spend it on your own passions. So James was talking about desires and pa- or let me say this, James was talking about us getting what we want, and right here he tells us why we don't get what we want. He's talking about our desires and passions, and now he tells us why those desires and passions go unsatisfied, because they can be selfish. And I want you to notice the parallelism, because it's not at all coincidental, that exists between James 1.5 and James 4.3. Let me say that one more time. There's significant parallelism that exists between James 1.5 and James 4.3. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That verse is all about asking and receiving. It really couldn't be written more encouragingly or to cause a greater expectation than when you ask for something, you're going to get it. Do you see the parallelism with James 4.3 that it's written almost oppositely? It says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So it's, it's saying the opposite of James 1.5 and that James 1.5 says ask and expect to get it. James 4.3 says you're asking, but you should not expect to get it. And so it's like God wants to encourage us that we must ask the right way. We must ask with the right reasons. And if we're not, then we should be confident that that request is not going to be answered. And so we should all be thinking about this. How, how do we pray? 
What are our motives like? What are the reasons behind our prayer? What, what request are we trying to have answered? Is it, is it selfish or is it unselfish? Are we thinking only about ourselves? Are we praying for something simply because of what we can get out of it? And there's, it's not to say that we can't ever pray for ourselves or people we love or we can't have requests that could look selfish, but it's clear that James wants us to consider that if we're praying entirely selfish prayers, we should be prepared not to have those requests answered. And then the next lesson. God might say no because lesson two, it's not his will. And go ahead and turn to John 14. God might say no because it's not his will. Jameson referenced these verses in one of his, in his recent sermon, and so you'll have some familiarity with it. John 14. Still hear some pages turning. John 14. Go ahead and look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name for the second time, he says this, then I will do it. And these are fairly notorious verses associated with praying because it sounds like we can get whatever we want as long as we ask in Jesus' name. I have a good friend from high school. He's a, an atheist or maybe at best an agnostic. He contacted me some years ago because he read these verses or somehow became familiar with them. And he said, what is this all about? You know, do Christians get whatever they want? Does this mean you just say, you know, in Jesus' name? And then suddenly, and his point was like, why aren't all these Christians rich and wealthy and free from disease? Because apparently all they have to do is just say in Jesus' name, and then they're going to, and then they, he said, he promised them that we'll get whatever, whatever we desire. And so we have this lengthy dialogue about it, but it's probably a, desire, a dialogue that should be had with Christians at times too. I mean, Christians don't have to be antagonistic when having some of the same questions about this verse. They, people can ask very sincerely. You can look at this verse and then wonder, well, what does this mean when Jesus says this? Now, for many of you, you sat under my, my preaching or my praying for years. You've heard me pray hundreds or may, perhaps even thousands of times. And so you know that I'm completely comfortable praying and at the end of my prayer saying in Jesus' name. In fact, I probably said that when I concluded my prayer opening the the sermon. One of the main reasons that I will say in Jesus' name at the end of my prayers is so that should anyone be listening, they know that I'm a Christian, that I'm not just praying to some, praying to some nebulous theistic God that's out there, that I am praying to the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am praying to God, the Father of Jesus Christ. But to be honest with you, I am not convinced that when Jesus said this, that he intended for us to do that, literally. I, to be perfectly clear, I'm not convinced that when Jesus said this, that he intended that we would conclude all of, our wor- all of our prayers with the words in Jesus' name. And why is that? Because I'm, I'm not convinced that it was intended literally. I'm convinced that what he meant was to pray in Jesus' name, not by saying the words in Jesus' name, but by praying according to his character or his will. Because to pray in Jesus' name is to pray as though you were you are him to call your well let me back up a little bit to call yourself a christian is to wear his name to call yourself a christian is to say that you are a follower of jesus christ to pray in his name is to pray as though he would to pray what the best you could to pray what he would pray to pray as though you were him as his follower his name is a way to refer to his character or who he is and so to say that you're praying in his name is simply to say that you're praying according to his will, praying as though the best you can uh, consider what he would want you to pray. Now, listen to these complimentary verses that support this, because we always have scripture interpret. And by the way, to be clear, you'll, you'll hear me pray many other times or hundreds of other times, and I will continue to say in Jesus' name for the reasons that I said earlier. Often in my home when I pray, I might not say that, but that's because I'm confident that my, my children know that I'm praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying privately, I definitely don't, don't often say these words and one of the reasons I stress this or that I think it's so important is because some people almost believe it's like an incantation. 
You know, you just throw this on the end of your prayer request, and because you prayed in Jesus' name, then you're going to get it. Or they, they think they're increasing the likelihood of having their prayer answered by saying this. And I think most people would recognize that that's not what happens then. Their prayer isn't answered simply by... And some people, they just need to know this. They're not being selfish. They need to know this for their own encouragement because they have read this in the pages of Scripture. They have believed what it says. They have taken it too literally. They have said in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, and then what? The prayer wasn't answered, or at least it wasn't answered the way that they wanted. And then they began, sadly, to disbelieve Scripture or disbelieve what they thought was being promised to them. And so it's important for people to understand this. And if Scripture interprets Scripture, 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's what it is to pray in Jesus' name, to pray according to his will, and then we can be confident that he will answer. The next logical question, though, is how do we know what is and is not Jesus's will? How do we know if he wants to heal? How do we know if he wants to provide that job or that promotion? How do we know if he wants to establish that relationship? We do get at least a little bit, or not even a little bit, we do get a considerable clue in the verse regarding determining God's will in the words that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you were to ask me, what is God's will, or what is Christ's will, or if we're to pray in Jesus's name, how do we know what that will is going to be? I would say, is it going to bring glory to the Father? It's go- it must bring glory to the Father, and if it doesn't, then we can be sure that's not going to be Jesus's will. Now, what's difficult about this is that what brings glory to the Father isn't always what we like or what we want. I think it was when we were watching American Gospel, and Justin Peters made this uh, wonderful point that it happened to bring glory to the Father to release Peter from prison. Apparently in Acts 7, it also happened to bring glory to the Father for Stephen to be stoned. Now, you don't need to, you don't need to pity Stephen too much because he had the wonderful blessing of being then ushered into eternity where he got to look to heaven and see, see God the Father and God the Son. So I, don't, I wouldn't pity Stephen, but most people don't get to have that, that luxury and so the issue is we don't always know whether God wants to, to heal, whether he wants to, what's interesting is with Lazarus, it brought God the Father glory for Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he didn't raise everyone. There are people that remain sick, there are people that remain dead, but I will say this, when we pray, if you are seeking to bring glory to the Father through your prayer, then you can be certain that that's a prayer that has a greater likelihood of being answered because we're told that that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name, to bring glory to the Father. Now, I want to share an example with you of God saying no to someone that I, God saying no to someone I learned, that I learned about recently that encouraged me and I hope uh, can be as much of an encouragement to you. As you know, when everything happened with COVID, we began live streaming since we were not able to meet in person. And we started using the website Sermon Audio, which I suspect many of you probably had an amount of familiarity with already. It's a wonderful website providing, providing some, you know, hundreds of thousands of tremendous sermons from godly preachers. And Katie and I were already using it as far back as California. Well, we started using Sermon Audio to live stream the services and to, to hold all of our sermons. And it was founded, I'm just going to introduce two names to you, that's it, to keep track of, by a man named Stephen Lee. He's the founder of it. One other name I want to introduce you to is Pastor Alan Cairns. And I had listened to some of Pastor um, Alan's sermons and, and greatly enjoyed his ministry, benefited from it. And he, Pastor Alan Cairns passed away at, toward the end of 2020, so just about maybe two months ago. And I was surprised to learn that Pastor Alan Cairns was Stephen Lee's pastor, the founder of Sermon Audio. And it seems to me that when Pastor Allen passed away, Stephen Lee, the founder of Sermon Audio, wanted to honor his, his previous pastor. He had sat under his preaching for, it sounds like, decades. And so Stephen Lee sends out this newsletter honoring his pastor, and listen to what he said. This is Stephen Lee writing. He says, most people don't know this about me, but although I was studying computer science at Bob Jones University, 
I had a strong desire to go into ministry. I spoke with my pastor, Alan, about this matter, and to my surprise, he, Pastor Alan, in essence, told me no, that I shouldn't become a pastor, as he said he detected other gifts in me. It was a humbling rejection. But in retrospect, over 20 years later, I can now see the providence of God in that day. Even though my path to full-time ministry was blocked, my love for preaching and my desire to be engaged in kingdom work never diminished. I remember watching Pastor Allen tirelessly pour his heart and soul into sermons to a congregation. And I didn't know this. I assume Pastor Allen probably had you know, a fairly large church. But Stephen said, I watched my pastor pour his heart and soul into sermons to a congregation of only a handful of people. And I thought, what a shame that more people were not able to hear this. I thought, I remember looking at a wall of cassette tapes in the back room that were collecting dust, and I was thinking these could still be a blessing to so many people. There needs to be a platform where small but faithful churches can upload their sermons and reach thousands. If it were not for Pastor Allen's courage and honesty with me, sermon audio might never have been born. So Stephen desired to preach, and through Pastor Allen, God said what to him? No, that's not my plan for you. And at the time, Stephen shares that it was humbling. I'm sure that it was very discouraging to be told by his own pastor that he shouldn't become a preacher. But God wanted to bring glory to himself a different way through Stephen's life. And, and I have no doubt that what Stephen has been able to do or what God has been able to do through Stephen founding Sermon Audio has been a, a tremendous, I mean, done exponentially more to bring glory to God than probably Stephen would have done if he had been able to, you know, stand behind a pulpit like I do. Now, sometimes we can look back like Stephen did, and we can see God's fingerprints on situations. There are times we prayed for things, God said no, and at the time we were discouraged, we were hurt, we were confused, but then years later, what can we say? Thank you, God. Thank you so much for not answering that prayer request of mine. Thank you so much for telling me no, or thank you so much for being in charge of my life. Or another way to say it is, thank you for not giving me what I wanted at that moment. I'm, I'm so glad that my life is in your hands, that you're in control, that you're in charge, because what, what a mess I might have made for myself. You know, one of the things I think about was relationships. Earlier in my life, the greatest pain I experienced came from relationships ending, girls breaking up with me. And if I have a moment, if I'd have the ear of all of the children here or young people here, you, you, and I'm not joking when I say this, by God's grace, we'll probably not have to know that pain because you have been blessed to be introduced in a culture that will largely try to protect you from the world's worldly dating system. You will not have to go through that. Should you continue to honor your parents, then you'll be protected from some of the uh, grief that we had to go through because, or at least I had to go through because I wasn't, didn't grow up in a Christian home and didn't grow, grow up around Christians. My point in sharing that, though, was there were some times where I guess I heard no when a situation didn't work out with a girl, and I mean the immeasurable or unspeakable thankfulness that I would have now that God protected me from what could have been a terrible mistake, so I could end up marrying Katie, and you know, doors that were closed that I can look back on and be so thankful that they were closed, that they were not open at that time. Thankfulness that other doors opened that I did not anticipate or expect. And the thing is, when we look back, we can say thanks for those situations where we see God's fingerprints, but other situations we can't. We're forced to wonder why things went the way that they did, but what does it mean to walk by faith? We talk so often about walking by faith and and we think that it means to trust God with these, um, you know, huge decisions that involve so much faith. Walking by faith isn't so much about the future. I mean, it can be, but walking by faith is about the past. When you can look back and say, I don't know why God did what he did, but I still trust him. He knows what's best, and I'm, I'm unspeakably thankful that my life is in his hands and that he was controlling, the, or like we talked about earlier, those twists and turns that I would encounter because he knows best. Now, other times... It can seem 
like God is saying no, but he's just saying not yet. The, the difficulty or the trial for us during those seasons is that while God is saying not yet, it looks exactly like no until that door opens. And so for me, at least two situations, I remember with many of my young friends, we're approaching, you know, we're in our mid-20s and then, and then approaching our late-20s and we're single and we're like, well, maybe God just wants us to be single the rest of our lives. Let's just resign ourselves to that and we'll all just keep living together, hanging out, moaning and groaning about how lame we are. You know, that's what we thought. And then now all of us are married and having, having children. Uh, but my point is, until yes, it, until yes, not yet looked exactly like no. I mean, another instance, I could not have loved teaching elementary school more. I mean, I was in my classroom on the weekends. I was staying very late in my classroom um, during the weekdays. Apparently, I was a pretty, uh, didn't have much of a social life at that time, as you can imagine. But I became a Christian, and then suddenly, my passion for teaching elementary school is one of the most shocking things to me, just absolutely plummeted. I, I had almost no desire to preach any or to teach anymore. I wanted to preach. I wanted to share God's word. I didn't want to tell students to open, you know, math and science books. I wanted to tell people to open God's word. And I look back, and it wasn't really that long of a season that I had to wait before becoming a pastor, but it seemed like an immeasurably long time because that's always what happens. When we're in that season, it seems like it's stretching on for eternity. Now, by God's grace, he did not let me enter the ministry earlier, earlier because I'm sure I would, have, I would have caused considerable problems, and I mean that sincerely. I mean, I've made enough mistakes entering ministry when I did. Had I entered any earlier, I mean, who knows the, the mistakes that I would have made. And so God's timing is perfect. He knows when things should happen and when things should happen. He knows when to say no. He knows when to say not yet. Our responsibility is not to figure out or to determine. Remember what wisdom is. Remember what wisdom is not. Our responsibility is not to determine why God is saying no or why he is saying not yet. It isn't even our responsibility to determine why God is saying yes. It's simply our responsibility to be faithful in whatever he is saying yes about. Our responsibility is when we hear no or not yet is to trust and believe that he knows what's best for us. The next part of lesson one God might say no because lesson three, sin has consequences. God might say no because lesson three, sin has consequences, and you can turn to Deuteronomy 3. And while you turn there, just, just to be clear, wise people, regardless of whether it's no or not yet, they continue to trust God and walk by faith. So when you're looking for wise people, or if you want to determine if people are wise— don't look for wisdom or don't expect or don't believe that someone is wise because they can tell you why God is doing everything he's doing. You know you have encountered a wise person when the person continues to trust God when it doesn't make sense. In other words, you have not encountered a wise person when they can explain everything to you. That, that might be a foolish person or a false teacher. You know you have encountered a wise person when you see someone who continues to trust God and walk by faith, especially through a difficult situation when they can't make sense of it, because that's what wisdom is. It's navigating or handling those curves well and continuing to trust God through them. Now, here's the context for these verses in Deuteronomy 3. Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, as you know. They don't get too far into the wilderness before the people cry out for water. And God has Moses strike this rock, and then water springs forth from this rock, and we're told that this rock continued to follow the nation of Israel through the wilderness, providing water for them throughout their journey. And then we're told, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 10, that that rock itself was Christ. It was him providing for them um, what they needed. Well, 40, then you know what took place with this generation. They had cried out for water with the 12 spies. They rebelled at the border of the promised land when the 10 spies came back with a bad report. And so because that generation was unbelieving, God says, I cannot take them into the promised land because they will never be able to defeat those enemies because they lack the faith. And so what God decided to do was to have that generation wander around for 40 years until they died in the wilderness. The wilderness became one of the largest graveyards in all of history. 
And then God said that he would bring their children, the children of that dead generation, into the promised land 40 years in the future. So Moses begins leading this new generation, the children of the parents who died, and they, like their parents, they also cry out for water. Now, because that rock is a picture or type of Christ, and Christ is only to be struck once, God told Moses to speak to the rock. And in a completely uncharacteristic moment, uncharacteristic at least for Moses, he lost his temper with the people, he chastised them, and in this fit he struck the rock even though God had told him simply to speak to it. He did what he did 40 years earlier, but this time he hadn't been told to strike it because Christ isn't to be struck twice. And Moses, and probably the mistake he made is contained in the words, must we. Moses said to the people, must we bring water out of the rock? And what Moses did was he put himself shoulder to shoulder with God as though, I mean, let me ask you, did, did Moses have any power to bring water out of a rock? He had as much power to do that as we do. And so Mo, Moses never brought water from a rock. He simply did the things that God said, and then God did those things. Well, when Moses said this, he made it look as though there was a partnership between him and God, or he made it look as though God needed him on his team. And so God said, I, you did not honor me before these people. And so because of that, I must prevent them from thinking that I need you. I must prevent them from thinking that this is some kind of partnership so that I can be esteemed in their eyes. You will not bring them into the promised land. Your servant Joshua will. Well, this is very troubling to Moses. He loved these people. He had led them for 40 years. He'd sacrificed greatly for them. And so even though he had received this discipline from God, he wants to ask him if he can still go in the promised land despite what God has said. So look at me at Deuteronomy 3.23. And just to be clear, Moses is recounting a conversation he had with God. It's going to sound a little awkward, but Moses is talking to the nation of Israel and telling them about a conversation that he had with God. And so in verse 23, he says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, and I said to him, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. Now, I have four thoughts. I was trying to think, I was reflecting, if I did not know how this progressed, or if I did not, did not know how God was going to respond, what would I think? And these are the four things that came to mind. First, I would think Moses has sacrificed so much to lead these people, and it was a fairly excruciating ministry for much of the time. Such a nightmare for him that at least on one occasion, he just asked God to kill him. He says, take my life. Anything would be better than continuing to deal with these, with these people. And so my first thought, he has sacrificed so much that he should be able to go into the promised land. My second thought, Moses' sin doesn't look that bad. From my perspective, I mean, he struck a rock, the same thing he had done 40 years earlier. It wasn't wrong, yes, but it wasn't that big a deal. He didn't kill someone. I mean, he did kill someone when he was back in Egypt, but that's not why he's being kept out of the promised land. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't steal something, you know, like Achan. So was it really that bad, his sin? I mean, just, just let him go. I would. And third, we're talking about Moses. We're not talking about some foreigner or gentile or or canaanite we're talking about one of the greatest men one of the greatest intercessors in the old testament which means we're talking about a man who when he prays god answers the way that he wants when one of the greatest intercessors speaks to god he generally gets his way so he's going to get to go that's what i would expect and then the fourth thing we're talking about the friend of God. I think it's in Exodus 33, verse 11, that it says that God spoke to Moses face to face as he would speak to a friend. Moses experienced an intimacy with God that's probably not known by anyone else in Scripture. The closest would probably be the relationship the disciples had with Jesus. And so when one of God's friends who speaks to him face to face asks for something, what do you expect? He gets it. He gets what he wants but I'm not God. And so look what happened. Verse 26, 
the Lord was angry with Moses because of you, and he would not listen to me. The Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. In other words, do not ask again to go in the promised land. Go up to the top of Pisgah, lift up your eyes westward, northward, southward, eastward, look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. In other words, that's as close as you're going to get, but I'd like you to be able to see it. When Katie and I disagreed a little about this, she thought that God said just like kind of scathingly or, or um, in a disciplinary, a judicial way, go up to the mountain, that's as close as you're going to get. I thought it was like, go up to the mountain, I would like you to be able to see the land, even though you can't go in there. Regardless of the case, verse 28, God said, Josh, charge Joshua, encourage and strengthen him, because he's the one who's going to be the head of the people from now on. So he climb, Moses climbs up to this mountain, and he looks around, and that's as close as he got to the promised land. But what I want you to notice, I mean, and so when I said I'm not God, what I mean is, I had my thoughts. I thought God would let him go if I didn't know what happened, and I was completely wrong. God decided he wouldn't go. And not only that, God was angry. He said, don't even talk to me about this matter again. What does God sort of sound like? Kind of sounds like a parent telling one of his children what? You better quit asking me. I don't want to hear about this one more time. Now, I'll share one more example with you before I mention the application. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he has her husband Uriah murdered. Bathsheba is with child, and part of the discipline is the child's death. And so David prays to God and fasts, I believe, for seven days that this child is going to live. Now, again, I'm trying to think, what if I didn't know what was going to happen? What would I expect? And a few thoughts came to mind. First, I think this is very important, so please hear me when I say this. God already told David through the prophet Nathan that his sin was forgiven or it was taken away. And we tend to think that if we're forgiven, then there are no consequences. If we are forgiven, we will not experience God's discipline. So I'm tempted to think, well, God did tell David through the Nathan prophet his sin, his sin has been taken away, and so he's probably not going to experience the consequences, and, will, and God, through David's intercession for this child, will allow the child to live. Second, the child didn't sin. Why should the child die for David's sin? One of the other things that we're tempted to think, I would say tempted to think wrongly, is that when someone sins, just that person suffers. <laughs> uh, let me say this absolutely clear. There is no sin in all of history that has ever been committed that only affected the sinner. It is impossible for there to be a sin that does not affect others beyond the sinner. That's just the way that life on this side of heaven works. In fact, most often, many people suffer, and sometimes the people who suffer suffer worse than the person who sinned. And so, for me to think that this child is going to get to live because David is the one who sinned and not the child is, is completely unbiblical. Third, I thought, this is David. This is the man after God's own heart. Who could have, what better description or title could someone have than David has? And so, of course, the man after God's own heart that God loves tremendously, if anyone's prayers are going to be answered, it's his. But I, again, I'm not God. And so even if I thought this is the way it would go, you know what happened. Second Samuel 12, 16, David sought God on behalf of the child. He fasted. He went. He laid on the ground all night. And on the seventh day of his lying on the ground fasting and praying, the child died. Now, I want to be clear about why these examples are so important. Moses and David were loved by God. They were forgiven for their sins. They were wonderful spiritual men. They served the Lord faithfully for decades. They are some of the greatest heroes of the faith. I mean, along Moses and David, along with Abraham, are kind of like the big three of the Old Testament. But even their sins had consequences, and it is the same for us. You can be loved. You can be forgiven. You can be spiritual. You can serve the Lord faithfully, and your sins can still have consequences, or most often do have consequences, and one of those consequences can be unanswered prayers. You can sin, you can be forgiven, and you can pray, and you cannot have that prayer answered because of sin 
that you have committed. The next lesson, lesson four, God might say no because of the person, or excuse me, God might say no because of the other person. God might say no because of the other person. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 7. Turn to Jeremiah 7, the second major prophet. So turn to the poetical books, Psalms and Proverbs. Pass those to the prophets. You get Isaiah, and then the second book is Jeremiah. Now here's the context for these verses we're going to look at. Jeremiah was the prophet to the Jews leading up to their exile in Babylon. He preached to them 40 years. It overlaps with the exile. He preached 20 years before God started taking the Jews into exile. And then Jeremiah continued preaching to the Jews who were in the land, who had not been taken into exile, basically until there were so few Jews in the land that there wasn't any reason for him to continue preaching, it seems. So he preaches to them for 40 years, repeatedly warning them, telling them to repent. There's no recorded repentance or no recorded converts under his ministry. Must be one of the greatest encouragements for people who feel like their ministry is a failure. Jeremiah is one of the greatest men in history, and his ministry could not looked, have looked like a, a, a greater failure. Now, Jeremiah repeatedly intercedes for the people, and look what God says in verse 15. Jeremiah 7, 15. See what he says about, about the Jews not talking about Jeremiah himself. He says, I will cast you, the Jews, out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen, casting them into Babylon, all the offspring of Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest of the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And so when God said, so the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians. And so when God says, I'm going to cast you, the southern kingdom of Judah, or the Jews, into Babylon, I'm going to do exactly what I did with your kinsmen or your brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, God has some interesting words for Jeremiah. He says that in verse 16, as for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up a cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. So God told Jeremiah he's not going to hear his prayers for these people, and here's the question. Why wouldn't God listen to Jeremiah's prayers or his intercession for the Jews? Was it because Jeremiah wasn't prayerful enough? Was it because he wasn't godly enough? Was it because he didn't pray fervently enough? Was it because he didn't fast long enough? Not at all. Look at the next verse for the answer. Verse 17, God says, do you not see what they, the Jews, are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? In other words, I am not going to answer your prayers for them because of them. It had nothing to do with Jeremiah. He was a great man. He was a prayerful man. He was a deeply spiritual man. He was a committed man. But his, even all of his godliness was not enough to see the Jews saved or delivered. Turn to Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15, verse 1. The Lord said to me, it's getting worse, Mo though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them, get the Jews out of my sight, and let them go. And so God said, if Moses and Samuel, two of the most famous or greatest intercessors in the entire Old Testament, if they were both standing before God, interceding for the Jews, God would not answer their prayers for the Jews. God would still cast them out of his sight into Babylon. One more example. Turn to the right to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is after Jeremiah. It's, you'll, you'll pass Lamentations, which is a few chapters, and then Ezekiel, chapter 14. Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel was the prophet to the Jews when they were in Babylon. So Jeremiah was preaching to the Jews when he was in the promised land, and Ezekiel was the prophet who was preaching to the exiles of the Jews who had been brought into Babylon. 
So Ezekiel 14, verse 13, God says, Son of man, that's the name or the description or the title God has for Ezekiel throughout the book. He says, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting foolishly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and I break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, I cut it off from man and beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would not deliver or they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Verse 15, if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of these beasts, even if these three men, again, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, notice this, they would deliver, they wouldn't even deliver one single person. They would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate because the people would have been removed from it. Now, I'm not saying these men are perfect. You know, we know Noah got drunk. We know that Job struggled with pride toward the end of the book. But you want to talk about getting about as close as you can to uh, perfection on this side of heaven, you're not going to beat these three men. And God says, you could put these men in front of me, and even they would not be able to deliver these people. And these accounts with the Jews, they show us something that I think is so important God can say no, and it could have nothing to do with those praying or interceding, and it could have everything to do with the people being prayed for. So there is great application for us. Sometimes we are praying for people, and what might we pray for? I mean, who hasn't prayed for someone's salvation? Who hasn't prayed for someone's repentance? You've prayed for someone's humility. You prayed for someone to stop something. You prayed for someone to start something. And those prayers aren't answered. And what? What are you tempted to think? It is your fault if you just had more faith. Maybe you've been told that. I mean, what a, what a tragedy it is to see uh, preachers who will stand before people and tell them, something as horrific as this child wasn't healed or these people weren't saved or that evangelistic effort didn't go better because you didn't have the faith. The reality is it is not an indication necessarily of the faith of the people praying or the spiritual maturity of the people praying or the commitment of the people praying. There is no amount of of godliness or spiritual maturity or spiritual fervor or prayer and fasting that can bring a yes from God all the time. These accounts show us that you could have Jeremiah, you could have Moses, you could have Samuel, you could have Noah, you could have Daniel, you could have Job, and these three men would not be enough to provide a different outcome. This gentleman, this happened just last night. I don't, I don't think any of you would know him. He doesn't go to our church, never been here. I think he was just a very desperate man knew I was a pastor. We don't have the closest relationship. I know his family somewhat, and he texts me, and he tells me that his son just drops this bomb on the family and is going to begin this sinful relationship with this young lady. And I know the son. By all accounts, I thought he was a neat young man. And even though it was a, a few text messages we ex- exchanged late last night, you could hear the desperation in his voice. And all he wanted more than anything was to see his son what? repent, change what he was doing, not do it, not do that. And what he needed was to know that what his son was doing wasn't his fault. And how many parents need that encouragement? How, how many parents, and I don't think that there are perfect parents by any means, but how many parents have faithfully brought their children to church? How many parents have faithfully preached the word, the gospel to their children? And then how many parents have been forced to see a child rebel? And then those parents need to be shown this example. They need to see that even if some of the greatest intercessors were interceding for that child, that it doesn't necessarily mean something is going to change or that it's going to be a yes. There aren't many things that are more heartbreaking than praying for someone or for some situation and hearing a no, but we need to remember that it's not necessarily our fault. It is not a reflection of us. It doesn't mean that if we had more 
more faith. It doesn't mean that if we prayed harder or we prayed longer that there would be a different outcome. If you're praying for a sinful person who's unrepentant and that, and that person continues on that path, then you need to remember that if God was to speak about it, he might say that it's because of what that person is doing that it is a no. That's why it has not been a yes. We've all prayed for people before, and it can be one of the most discouraging things when those prayers are not answered the way we want. And remember this lesson. It's not necessarily our fault. We don't need to feel bad. It might have nothing to do with us. It might have everything to do with those people. Free moral agents. I suppose one of, at times seems to be one of the most frustrating things about living on this side of heaven. We like our free moral agency. We just don't like the free moral agency of other people, right? <laughs> we like our free will. We just wish everyone else was robots and did exactly what we wanted or what we know that God wants for them, right? If, if everyone else could be, in, could be a robot and I'm the one who, that's how we feel, or just give me the controls, give me the steering wheel of their life, God. But just to be reminded that they have the steering wheel. I want to conclude with this. Hearing no from God, it can be quite a trial, and I understand that, but we want to remember that God knows what's best. His ways are right. He's all-knowing, and if the answer is no, it's not because there's something wrong with us. It's because that's the perfect answer. God's timing, His purposes, they're perfect. They go beyond our imaginations or understanding And what it means is that wise people accept that. Wise people walk with that in mind. Wise people remember that God knows what's best, and they trust him, and they want their lives in his hands. And wise people are are the ones who say, I don't understand. I have no idea why this is happening. I would have expected it to go any other direction than this, but I trust God. But I know that he knows what's best. Father, we thank you for that reality that when things don't go the way we want, when our prayers aren't answered the way we desire or would expect, or to put it simply, we thank you, God, that when we hear no, we can still trust you, that you're doing what's best, and that you know what's best for us and for our lives. Help us to believe that and to walk in that, in that truth, Lord, all of us. Help us to understand that that walking by faith means seeing the invisible, not understanding, but trusting you anyway, and help us to navigate the turns that we face in life, these trials and tribulations, in a way that would glorify you. I pray that could be our desire on this side of heaven, Lord, that you can be glorified through what we experience, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.